All right, good morning, COV. So great to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Karen Miller, and I'm on staff here at Church of the Valley. I'm wondering, have you ever had one of those moments where you thought you were in control, you were making decisions and calling the shots, and then you realize maybe in hindsight that God was actually in charge, graciously overruling some of the dreams and choices you had? Well, I've had that happen a ton of times in my life, but I'm just gonna share one of them. So, I'm a senior in high school and I'm applying to colleges. I had a full ride to Ohio State, or should I say, the Ohio State. Uh, I had a half-ride scholarship to the University of Arizona. So those were my choices, so I fly out to Ohio State and three things happen. So first of all, I was a swimmer, and two girls in the pool got electrocuted and had to go to the hospital. Then I discovered that the coach made her girls wear crystals, kind of new agey kind of thing. And then they took me to a place where they served beer by the bucket. Now that may be your thing, it was not my thing. So Ohio State's out. So I'm going to University of Arizona. I'm literally signing the letter of intent and the phone rings. Bring, bring. And I discover that the football team was on probation. They'd lost all their funding and had to revoke my scholarship. It's now May, and I have nowhere to go to college. God steps in. To make a long story short, I end up going to uh, San Jose State. Woo! Yes, all of you who went there. All right. And the cool thing about that was my good friend from high school also went to San Jose State. We were roommates, and she was a very strong Christian. And she was very instrumental in bringing me back to the Lord after I'd strayed. Now, I did transfer to Stanford, but I will tell you that San Jose State was much better for my soul than Stanford was. So, you know, I thought I was calling the shots, but there was God graciously working behind the scenes, protecting me in ways I didn't even think I knew. God was and is in charge. So as we look at this passage today, it's long, right? Uh, we'll see that the apostles continue their mission to bear witness to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and share the gospel. And we'll see that God is working behind the scenes on their behalf. Now, the context of our passage is very important. So far, we've seen in Acts, the disciples were commissioned, right, to be witnesses. And then at Pentecost, God poured out his spirit. And after Peter's sermon, 3,000 people repented and received Jesus' gift of salvation and the Holy Spirit. And then we get to Acts 3, Peter and John healed the lame man. And that opens the door for Peter's second sermon. The priest the temple guards, the Sadducees don't like it, and they put Peter and John in jail. Peter and John face trial, and you gotta love Peter. He boldly proclaims, right? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So the council huddles together the religious leaders to figure out what to do with Peter and John since they can't deny the miracle. So they say, okay, we'll let you go, but you can't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And then Peter, again, bold, right? He says, you, uh, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
All right, so now we're in Acts 5, right? Meanwhile, inside the church, crazy things are happening. People are selling their property and giving it to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira die for lying to the Holy Spirit. We heard about that last week. And the church is growing by leaps and bounds, and tons of people are being healed. And that's where we left off. So let's dive into today's passage. As we look at this passage, I want you to notice who thinks there's in charge and then who's actually in charge. So the title of the sermon is cleverly called, Who's in Charge? All right, here we go. Verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. All right, Ruth did this a couple weeks ago, but let's remember who the religious leaders are. Uh, The high priest was the ringleader, and that would have been Annas or Caiaphas. The Sadducees controlled the official political structures of Judaism at the time. They were the majority members of the Sanhedrin. They believed that morality was necessary for civic order. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. In fact, they really didn't believe in a spiritual world at all. If you put it in modern terms, it's what we would call secular people or moral rationalists, people who believe in doing good. And the gospel confronted their belief system at almost every point. So we see the religious leaders, they're upping their game, right? Last time they just put Peter and John in prison, and this time they're imprisoning all 12 apostles. And their unbelief has turned into hostility. So Tim Keller, a well-known pastor, writes, unbelief or a lack of belief opposition to the gospel message is not a simple thing. It's a complex thing. It's not a simple lack of something. It's the presence of something else. It's not just a lack of persuasion. It's a spirit of deep hostility and confusion, deep and pervasive unbelief. Unbelief isn't just intellectual. It's emotional. And in the leader's case, the religious leader's case, it induced jealousy. All right, so I want to pause and just look at how destructive jealousy is and think about what it says about God's sovereignty or his in-chargeness and his goodness. So Webster's Dictionary says that both jealousy and envy are often used to indicate that a person is covetous or wanting something that someone else has. But jealousy carries this particular sense of zealous vigilance and tends to be applied more exclusively to feelings of protectiveness regarding one's own advantage or attachments. Now, here's what's confusing about jealousy. God is often described as jealous for his people. He wants their affection and devotion. He doesn't want them worshiping idols. So jealousy can be a righteous emotion, But more often than not, jealousy is this. Jealousy is I want what you have, and I can't have it, so I hate you. Sounds kind of harsh, but let me give you a couple examples. You, brother or sister, have all of our parents' esteem, attention, or affection, so I hate you. You stole my dream job, so I hate you. You are now dating the guy I had a huge crush on, so I hate you. I think you get the idea. 
James 14 through 16 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there's disorder and every evil thing. So clearly the religious leaders are not motivated by a love for God's people and a desire for the truth. They wanna protect their own turf, their own power and influence and their own belief system. Their aversion to the gospel again is not intellectual or something seemingly well thought out. The religious leaders had a lot of power but they did not have the power to heal. They did not have the power to bring life and joy, and they for sure didn't have the power to save. Their religious leaders had influence and following, and yet at that time, people were starting to follow the apostles and their teaching about Jesus. And the religious leaders had a belief system that said miracles can't happen, and there's no resurrection from the dead. But with the raising of Jesus, their entire belief system was shaken. The gospel came and it pointed to their belief and value system and it said, this is wholly inadequate. The gospel came to the Jews and said, you know what? You're real moral, you follow the rules, but do you realize that before God you're no better off than the worst criminal? We are all sinners in need of grace. All right, so if we're honest, we don't often want our belief and value systems challenged. Uh, we don't want to give up control or influence, and we may resent the people who intentionally or unintentionally take it from us. And we may be jealous of those who have the very things we desire. So how do we deal with jealousy? I've often felt ashamed when I feel jealous. But jealousy is diffused if we can trust that God will provide what we actually need. If I think I need what you have, I'm gonna be jealous. But if I trust God will provide what I need, I don't have to be jealous of what you have. So I wanna ask, where is it that you still want to be in control? In what areas of your life does jealousy or coveting sometimes creep in? If I'm honest, Right now, I work two jobs, and sometimes I want to be a person who's more available for my family and friends. At school where I teach, where we still have a lot of COVID restrictions, I can feel pretty isolated and alone. Um, and I can be jealous of those people who seem to be more connected. Okay, but listen to this. If God is in charge, that's the theme of this passage, and he loves us, which he demonstrated by sending Jesus to die for us and to forgive us, and if he is our good father who provides what we need, not necessarily what we want, but what we need, then surrendering control should be a good thing, should be a wise thing. And it's hard to let go of that thing you think you need and trust God. But if we continue to hold on tight, it will only lead to destruction. So that's our first principle. God's in charge. He provides what we need. So what is it you think you want or need that God hasn't provided? Like, really think about that. What is it you think you want or need that God hasn't provided? 
And then how will you surrender that need to God and daily trust that he will provide what you actually need? I have been wrestling with this question over and over again for the last month or so. It's been very good for me. Anyway, the religious leaders, they had too much to lose, right? So instead of being open to change in direction, they took action. They put all 12 apostles in public jail, presumably to make the apostles afraid of their power and to put disgrace on them, right? If the apostles are vilified as common criminals, it's less likely that people will follow them. Think about that. All right, verse 19. We're going to see God intervening. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the door of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, notice they did that right awake, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Now in Acts, it can get confusing, this is the first of three miraculous jail miracles. The second one's in Acts 12, 6 through 10, when Peter is released from prison by an angel. And the third one is recorded in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are singing in the jails and they're rescued miraculously, and the jailer and his family are saved. Okay, the point is not the miracle itself. Notice the apostles, they aren't taking selfies with the angel, right? Posting about their experiences. You know, they're not doing that. The miracle happened so the apostles would continue speaking about all the words of this life, capital, capital letters life, right? So notice that they went right back to the temple and right back to the very thing that got them in prison before. These are no longer cowardly disciples prior to the resurrection. They seem to be fearless and certain that their message is vitally important to the hearers. And you know what? Their perseverance honestly really impresses me. So I'm wondering, another question. Ever had a hard conversation with someone that ended badly? Yeah, me too. Never happened. Ha ha. A little sarcasm there. All right. So in those moments, right, we might be tempted to shut down, back away, get angry, or give up. But then you might feel the Holy Spirit nudging you forward to go back to that very person who made your life hard. Maybe it's a call to genuinely apologize or forgive or both. And maybe it's a call to approach the situation with more compassion or empathy and really listen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, it's a very popular theme, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And if I wanted to emphasize a point there, it would be love perseveres, always perseveres. It doesn't give up on people or ministry for that matter. When I first started teaching, I decided that every summer, as long as I could, I would go on a mission trip. So my second mission trip was to Costa Rica. And we were going down to an orphanage to run kid programs and to fix up the place. So just getting there was ridiculously hard. I had to get a new passport. The passport agency, unknowns to me, lost my passport and my only birth certificate. 
I find this out two weeks before I'm supposed to go. I can't get my birth certificate and documentation in order. I miss my flight. And then um, I had to buy a second ticket on my own dime, and I arrived a day late. So everyone's telling me, wow, Karen, Satan must really want not you to be there. God's going to do these amazing things through you. All right, so that's the message I'm getting. So I'm in, there in Costa Rica, and I am just puffed up with pride, right? I'm buying it. And the whole trip was just hard. The leader didn't like me. I didn't really connect with the team. Uh, the kids were super sweet, but I couldn't speak their language, and it was hard to engage with them. And, uh, man, here was my takeaway from that trip. Can, we know takeaways can be wrong sometimes. Here it was. Missions must not be my thing. God must not want me to do them anymore. That was my takeaway. All right, so fast forward 10 years. I felt like God was asking me to go to Haiti for another mission trip. And the idea of returning to something that was so hard made me very afraid and doubt God's goodness. So I want to remember one day, I'm praying about that, you know, and it's not an audible voice, but I really felt like God was saying this to me. Karen, what you experienced for 10 days, being looked over, feeling unwanted and useless and disconnected, those kids, they experienced that for a lifetime. And in that moment, God broke my heart for the kids of that orphanage, and he broke my heart for the kids of Haiti who had little food, no education, no hope. And here's the cool thing about God. God turned my bad experience into a teaching experience because that's what God does if we let him. If I'm honest, honestly, I have, short, uh, I have mixed feelings about short-term mission trips. But sometimes God needs to get us out of the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley to teach us something new about himself that we can't learn here. And so every trip I've gone on has been invaluable. Well, the apostles went back to the temple after the first round got them thrown in jail. And what did they learn about God in that moment? It turns out God's in charge, not the religious leaders. And if God wants the gospel to go forward through them, he will make it happen. And so that's our next principle, God's in charge. He will help us persevere when obedience feels costly. So I want to ask you, in what context are you trying to be a witness or be Christ-like and it feels hard or unfruitful? God calls us to persevere even when it's hard or difficult. And what will perseverance look like in your specific context? It doesn't always look the same. In the book of James, we learn that perseverance makes us mature and complete and lacking in nothing. And I want that. So pray and ask God to help you endure to mature. Verse 21. When the high priest and associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin the full assembly of elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find him there, so they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. 
Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Now, this narrative part speaks for itself, right? The religious leaders thought they were in charge, but they got trumped. God trumped them, right? And it turns out they weren't in charge at all because God freed uh, the apostles. And the passage says they were greatly perplexed, right? They didn't really get it. And they're afraid of being stoned by the people. And honestly, I think that speaks to how popular the apostles were in general. So the religious leaders are gripped by jealousy, confusion, fear. Those are powerful emotions that generally lead to destructive thoughts and actions. So what do they do next? They round up the apostles to find out what went wrong. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made appear appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him to those who believe and trust in Jesus. Now, if you go back in Acts 4.18, we learn that the religious leaders had commanded the apostles not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. And yet the apostles had filled Jerusalem with their teaching. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be cool if we could fill Santa Clara with the teaching about Jesus and people would receive it? I don't know, love to see God on the move. So, the apostles continued to speak about Jesus, even though they were ordered not to speak. And the question is, why? What helped them endure in the face of danger? I want to see if Peter's response gives us any answers. Clue, it does. All right, so first notice the contrast between what God did and what the religious leaders did. The religious leaders killed Jesus. God raised Jesus from the dead, and then God exalted Jesus to his right hand as prince and savior, as the song said, right? We serve a risen God. Now, in Greek, that word prince can also be translated chief leader, captain, pioneer, or author. It's the same word translated author in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, which says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus was the author and perfecter of their faith, and he's the author and perfecter of our faith, their leader and ours, and the one we follow. So I want to ask you, 
Who are you following these days? Just think about it. Who are you following? Peter also describes Jesus as Savior. Now, a lot of you have been in the church for a while, and the word Savior is thrown around pretty regularly. But I wonder if you ask the average person on the street what they need saving from, what would they say? They might answer they need to be saved from stress or too much work or anxiety or fear. They may, they may need to be saved from insecurities, difficult relationships, oppressive systems, health issues, or addictions. And honestly, with all this escape TV out there, many want to be saved from the stark truth of reality and the difficulties of this life. They might want to be saved from boredom or drudgery, too many rules, lack of fulfillment. The list goes on. And right now, I think a lot of people might say we need to be saved from the horrific and tyrannic rule of Russia. Now that word savior implies that we need to be saved from something. Saved is synonymous for rescued or delivered. It implies there's some kind of threatening conditioning, a dangerous, desperate, or deadly condition from which we need to be rescued. The question is, from what? According to the gospel, some are preaching Jesus will take care of all of our problems. He'll fix our marriages. He'll help us raise confident kids brimming with self-esteem. He'll help us advance our careers. The only danger which we really need salvation from is the shattering of all our dreams. Now, I've also heard people present the gospel as if the great hope of salvation is relief from debilitating habits or emotions. And that salvation is especially attractive to a society like ours. Many are enslaved to sinful habits, various addictions, and we do, again, suffer from things like stress, anxiety, fear, guilt, and shame. Jesus will fix all of that. Now, on the one hand, hear me, absolutely, the work of the Spirit in our lives will lead us into joy and peace and help us overcome sinful habits since Jesus freed us from the power of sin and the rule of sin in our lives. And Jesus forgives uh, freely. And that forgiveness frees us from ongoing guilty feelings and shame. And Jesus, out of his grace, may fulfill some of our dreams. But he also may shatter some dreams to give us better dreams that align with his heart and purposes. But our real problem is sin and guilt. That's the issue. God sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. And everybody falls into the category of sinner. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So ultimately, Jesus first saves us from the wrath of God and the judgment to come. Because if we're honest, we know we're sinners and we have all earned and deserve God's wrath. That's a hard truth. But he rescues us from that. Then he restores us to a right relationship with him. And then as the Spirit works in our lives, we are saved from sinful habits, debilitating emotions, and worldly dreams that promise fulfillment but never deliver. So this is our next principle. God's in charge. Jesus is our leader and Savior. What do you need saving from? 
And how will you lean into Jesus and ask the Spirit to do that work in your life? So why did the apostles keep speaking about Jesus even when ordered not to? The apostles knew that the world needed and continues to need a leader and a savior. Recently, I watched the movie Titanic with my daughter. So, fun movie. The passengers are sailing on the unsinkable ship, uh, but they only had half the number of lifeboats necessary because the Titanic was the lifeboat, or so they thought, right? So, it would never sink. But when the ship starts to go down, if if you've seen the movie, you remember that human nature kind of kicks in, right? And people are more out to save themselves. Some of the lifeboats go out partially full. Some of the lifeboats go out, and they know there's people in the water that need to be rescued, but they do nothing because they are afraid. People were dying, and they did nothing. Don't you get it? Sometimes we're just like them. People are dying eternally separated from the God who loves them, and we are too afraid to speak anything, too afraid to rock the boat, so to speak. He isn't just my Savior or your Savior. He is the Savior for everyone. Keep that in mind. Verse 33. When they heard this, and that's Peter's sermon, everything he said, they were furious, and they wanted to put them all to death. Imagine that happening at this point in church history. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a man of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, Then they ordered them once again not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. All right, first a couple things we know about Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which meant he was in the minority party. If you remember, the Sadducees were the majority party, but he was very well respected. He spoke not from sympathy for the church, but with insight into God's sovereign working on earth. We also learn, kind of interestingly, in Acts 22.3, that the Apostle Paul was Gamaliel's student or pupil. And lastly, keep in mind, Gamaliel was not a Christian, but God used his wisdom to save the apostles. Now, little is known of Theodos, except what's written here. The point is he claimed to be somebody, led an uprising, but God wasn't in it, and it came to nothing. A little bit more is known of Judas the Galilean, who led a revolt in AD 6 after the census was ordered by the Romans and new taxes were levied. But again, he died and his followers were scattered. 
So then we get to verse 38. I love verses 38. Gamaliel says, and I paraphrase, let these men go. If it's their idea, it will fail. But if it's God's plan, you can't stop them. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders' perspectives change. And in that moment, I'm presuming they didn't want to fight against God. So that's our next principle. God's in charge. And he intervenes to align us with his perspective. In this moment, we see God intervening in a powerful way to change the perspective of the religious leaders and to rescue the apostles from imminent death. It wasn't their time to die. God still had meaningful work for them to do. Now, James, he'll die sooner than the others, but they will all be martyred for their faith, but not yet. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, 21 through 25, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith. Do you know what? When the people saw the early Christians dying in the arenas, stabbed, gored, mauled by lions, and they saw them singing, and then they saw people like Stephen saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing as they're stoning Stephen. Nothing had a bigger impact on people than that. The way you handle persecution and the way you handle the world's hatred will have everything to do with the kind of impact you have on the lives of the people around you. With the war continuing to rage in Ukraine and so many lives on the line, I think it's important to have an eternal perspective on life and death. That does not mean we don't grieve deeply or pray fervently for the protection of the people, and we do. But we also trust in God's timing for each person's life on this earth. And I know that's hard to hear. I also know that we like to identify with heroes in stories. I know I do. And so perhaps some of you, maybe even me, would like to be like Amelia, who proclaims truth and brings people to their senses and points people back to Jesus in a way that matters. And God, of course, may graciously allow those moments. But more often, we're like the religious leaders who've worked themselves into this emotional frenzy and need to be talked off the ledge. We need Gamaliels in our lives who can do this for us. Who are the Gamaliels in your life? Who are the people who can speak truth when you are emotionally charged and tempted to react in a way that doesn't honor God? I know that Mike, my husband, is for sure one of those people for me, and I am so, so, so grateful for him in my life. And if you don't have people in your life, pray and ask God to provide. And when you are emotionally charged, do you have a teachable spirit? And are you willing to listen to wise, godly counsel, taking in what they say to respond in a more godly way in a situation? So a few times recently, Mike's given me very godly wisdom, and honestly, I haven't liked his answer. And a couple of times, I actually left more angry than when I started, which is kind of a rare occurrence. But I did pray about it, 
And God basically said, you know, I need to listen. I need to be teachable. It's a good and humbling experience. And guess what? Mike was right, and I was wrong. (laughs) So grateful for him. Verse 40. I'm going to read this verse again because it helps with the context. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What do the apostles do? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is our last principle. God's in charge. Rejoice in suffering shame for his name. Rejoice in suffering shame for his name. So this is my prayer, that we here at COV would never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the good king, the loving king who died and rose again to lead and to save. May we trust that he's both in charge, thank you, and working for our good and his glory. All right, I didn't tell you we were going to have a little quiz, but I'm a teacher, so sorry. We're going to have a little quiz. All right, there were five principles in today's sermon, and you guys are going to fill in the blank, all right? So I'm going to read the first part, and when there's a line or a blank, you're going to shout out the answer. If you don't know, I'll help you out. So first one, God provides what we need. Yay, woo! God will help us persevere when obedience feels costly. Thank you. Jesus is our leader and... Savior. Yeah, you guys were listening. All right. God intervenes. Thank you. Delinus with his perspective. And the last one, rejoice in suffering for his name. You guys are awesome. Love you. All right. Um, let's pray. God, I am so grateful that you are in charge and I am not. And I'm so grateful that you're in charge of this church and we are just stewards. Um, for your grace and your glory. And I pray for all of us, God, that we would think deeply about where we want to be in control, where we want to be in charge, and that you give us the grace to surrender and to let go and let you do what you do best, to lead and to guide and to save. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.